Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The FT. Strange goings-on in the mortgage market as lenders cut rates. Why exchange-traded funds are going from strength to strength. And the pensioners stuck in poor-value products whatever the Chancellor says about new pension freedoms. Welcome to The Money Show, one of the FT's most downloaded podcasts. I'm James Pickford and I'll be giving you all the money news this week in downloadable form with Emma Dunkley from the FT. Hello. And special guests Alan Hyam, Retirement Director at Fidelity Worldwide Investment. Hello. And David Hollingworth of London and Country Mortgages. Hello. First, pensions. George Osborne's reforms to the pensions industry are set to give millions of people more decision-making power over their retirement planning options. From April next year, those aged 55 and over will no longer be forced to buy an annuity to provide a retirement income, but can instead decide to take their savings as a cash lump sum, which they can spend or invest as they please. The changes have been billed as a pensions revolution, offering people the chance to make higher returns from their pension savings and giving them much greater flexibility in retirement. But for many, the promise is an empty one. The FT has found that millions of savers are caught in schemes that will levy punitive charges if they try and exercise their new freedom to take their savings as cash. These charges typically range between 5 and 15%, but in extreme cases could be as high as 50%, wiping out half the value of their fund and effectively trapping these people in often poor-value schemes. Other penalties apply if a saver wants to get out but their provider offers no flexible income drawdown scheme. So if a saver wants to exit, they will have to transfer their scheme elsewhere, triggering a charge. And it's often the older schemes, those that people signed up to in the 1980s and 1990s, that are the worst offenders. Here with us to discuss the problem is Alan Hyam, Retirement Director of Fidelity Worldwide Investment. Alan, thanks for coming in. Can you give us a sense of the scale of this problem and how many people are affected? Well, the problem relates to policies sold in the late 80s and up to the late 90s. And they are typically retail pension contracts that were sold as regular premium contracts. So if you signed up to a new pension contract in the 80s or 90s where you were contributing a set amount a month, £50 a month, then the chances are you bought one of these policies that have these back-end charges. And the reason why they're so prevalent is that in those days, pensions were sold rather than bought. There was no automatic enrolment. 
So there were armies of commission-paid tied sales forces that were encouraging people to sign up to the new personal pension regime. Those people were paid commissions, and those costs had to be recovered uh, from the premiums that savers paid into their pensions. Now, at first, insurance companies tried to be upfront about these sales costs and said to their customers, "Well, for the first." 12 to 18 months, we won't actually allocate any of your premiums to a fund. They're going to use to pay our upfront costs. And when people realised that, no one bought them. So instead, they came up with this little wheeze called capital units, where they said, "We'll allocate all your premiums to these capital units." And in the small print, it said these capital units will attract, say, a four percent per annum higher management charge for the rest of the contract. So they recover their upfront costs gradually over time, but if you choose to take your money out or transfer it elsewhere before the contract finishes at your selected retirement age, then the insurance company would claw back the charges that they expected to recover. This leads to these back-end penalties, and that's why they're so prevalent. And I mean, what sort of numbers do you think we're we're talking about here? The people that that might be in these schemes. It was near universal by the time the late eighties and early nineties came in. So I'd, I'd say the, the vast majority of people who bought retail pension contracts at that time. Mm. And is it fair to say that in- the FT strange goings on in the mortgage market as lenders cut rates, why exchange traded funds are going from strength to strength, and the pensioners stuck in poor value products, whatever the Chancellor says about new pension freedoms. Welcome to The Money Show, one of the FT's most downloaded podcasts. I'm James Pickford and I'll be giving you all the money news this week in downloadable form with Emma Dunkley from the FT. Hello. And special guests Alan Hyam, Retirement Director at Fidelity Worldwide Investment. Hello. And David Hollingworth of London and Country Mortgages. Hello. First, pensions. George Osborne's reforms to the pensions industry are set to give millions of people more decision-making power over their retirement planning options. From April next year, those aged 55 and over will no longer be forced to buy an annuity to provide a retirement income, but can instead decide to take their savings as a cash lump sum, which they can spend or invest as they please. Pensions charges with possibly a more wider remit, but I don't expect them to cover these areas because these contracts were set up on a bona fide basis. The contract charges were disclosed. They were there in the contract. And whether people realised it or not at the time, they did agree to them. So what would you advise people to do? And I mean, first off, how, how can you tell if you are in one of these schemes? And secondly, is there anything you can do about it? Okay, the easiest way to spot whether you've got one of these schemes is to look whether you have got something called capital units or initial units. Those were the most commonly used terms to describe them. And those were the units that your premiums bought during the first one or two years of your contract. If you've got a contract with those type of units, then you are paying this higher management charge. What you can do is a calculation Are the extra charges you're going to pay over the remaining time that you have until your selected retirement age, are they going to cost you more than the penalty that would be levied to get out of it today? And The FT. Strange goings-on in the mortgage market as lenders cut rates, why exchange-traded funds are going from strength to strength, and the pensioners stuck in poor-value products, whatever the Chancellor says about new pension freedoms. 
Welcome to The Money Show, one of the FT's most downloaded podcasts. I'm James Pickford and I'll be giving you all the money news this week in downloadable form with Emma Dunkley from the FT. Hello. And special guests Alan Hyam, Retirement Director at Fidelity Worldwide Investment. Hello. And David Hollingworth of London and Country Mortgages. Hello. First, pensions. George Osborne's reforms to the pensions industry are set to give millions of people more decision-making power over their retirement planning options. From April next year, those aged 55 and over will no longer be forced to buy an annuity to provide a retirement income, but can instead decide to take their savings as a cash lump sum, which they can spend or invest as they please. The time of the dot-com boom. ETFs are investment funds holding assets such as shares, bonds or commodities, which track an index or a region or even a particular sector. They trade like shares on a stock market and hold several attractions for investors. Because they're automatically updated throughout the day to keep track of a selected index, their fees are a fraction of those charged by active fund managers. They're said to be more reliable too. Though a good active manager will often beat the index, it's hard for the average investor to know which ones will and which ones won't. An ETF tracker does exactly what it says it will do, track the value of a predefined set of assets or an index. They also allow people to invest in some quite specialised markets without actually directly holding the stocks in those markets themselves. But there are risks to these instruments. The Bank of England has already warned on one type, ETF swaps, which it said were complex and opaque and should be regarded with caution by retail investors. So what do you need to know about ETFs? And how should you protect yourself from potentially risky investments? Emma Dunkley from FT Money is here to talk through the ins and outs. Emma, thanks for joining us. First, why have ETFs taken off so quickly? They've only really been around for a decade or so. Yes, so they first came to the UK in April 2000. And admittedly, they didn't gain significant traction at the outset. It was mainly institutional investors who knew how to trade that started to buy them. But it was really during the financial crisis in 2007 and 2008 that ETFs came into their own and investors started flocking to them as they saw the benefits. So this was at a time when Lehman Brothers had just failed and a lot of investors were particularly nervous about bank-backed products, such as structured products, for example, that used Lehman Brothers debt to repay the capital. So not only were investors shying away from these type of products, but they were also quite nervous about typically actively run funds, insofar as some of these funds were investing in quite liquid assets and stopped trading. Another issue was that some of these funds gated, which meant investors couldn't pull their money out. In contrast, ETFs trade throughout the day and price throughout the trading day, so there's ample liquidity for investors. On top of this, ETFs also ring-fence assets, which mean that if the issuing institution fails, investors have the security of knowing their money is safe. So apart from those considerations, is there anything else that ETFs allow you to do that you can't do with normal shares? Yes, so whereas actively managed funds tend to cost around 0.75% a year, ETFs are a lot cheaper. One of the cheapest is 0.07% a year, which is significantly cheaper than your average active fund. On top of this, mutual funds only price once a day, whereas ETFs price throughout the day. Is it easy to compare the performance of different ETFs um, so you can see which ones you should buy? Seeing as all ETFs are index trackers, 
most of them will have similar performance in terms of they will literally follow the market up or down. But there are other considerations that you could look into when deciding which ETF to buy. So, for example, ETFs that are bigger in size are arguably safer because some subscale funds that only have a small amount of assets can close down. Another factor is that some ETFs are traded more than others. This might sound insignificant, but actually what this means is they will have tighter trading spreads. This means that you can buy and sell your ETF more cheaply, so your total cost of owning the fund will be lower than if you go for a, an ETF that isn't traded that frequently. But on top of this, it is true that some ETFs track or follow the index better than others. So you can look at sites such as Morningstar, for example, to look at so-called tracking error or tracking difference for your ETF. And do investors get the same level of protection with ETFs as they do with conventional funds? No, there's a different type of protection. So as mentioned, ETFs ring fence assets, so you know that your money is protected if the institution fails. However, as UK ETFs are actually domiciled offshore in Dublin or Luxembourg typically, they aren't covered by the Financial Services Compensation Scheme, which typically offers up to £85,000 of cover in the event of a deposit failing. It's also worth noting that George Osborne last year changed the tax regime for onshore ETFs, which has essentially opened the way for providers to launch funds in the UK. When that happens, these ETFs will have FSCS protection. You mentioned earlier that it was the financial crisis that caused the initial surge in the use of ETFs. I wonder now that we're facing the recovery of the economy, might that see ETFs suffer in a way because they're not they're not a haven asset anymore? That is true. I think more investors, however, have had time to get used to how ETFs work and they still have a lot to offer. There are still macroeconomic tensions at the moment, which has affected stock markets and other asset classes. And there are also concerns over liquidity in the bond market, for example. And that's when ETFs, which are highly liquid instruments, can come into their own. So they still have a role to play in that sense. There are some concerns that investors might be buying equity ETFs at the moment at a point where um, stock markets are arguably near all-time highs. So investors do have to bear in mind that ETFs track markets down as well as up. So if they buy at highs, they could see their money go down. So in this sense, it's a case of perhaps you should be holding ETFs for the long term. Emma, thank you very much indeed. You can read more about ETFs in our cover feature, written by Emma, in this weekend's FT Money. FT Money is part of the Weekend FT, which is on sale on both Saturday and Sunday, and you can read online at any time, ft.com slash money. The Weekend FT is also available on mobile devices via a free web app in both Apple and Android versions. We're always keen to hear your views. You can leave comments on articles on our website at ft.com slash money, or you can email us directly. The address is money at ft.com. On to our final item for today. UK mortgage holders have now been basking in ultra-low interest rates for over five years, allowing many to make big savings on their home loans and providing a stimulus to the housing market. But we know it's likely to be only a matter of time before all that changes. The Bank of England has been making heavy hints that base rates will rise as the economy returns to a healthier footing, and markets are factoring in a rise in 2015 at the latest. When that happens, anyone with a mortgage that isn't fixed will face higher monthly repayments, and those looking to take out a new loan or remortgage their property will pay more for the privilege. 
It's no surprise then that as we approach the day when base rates rise, the fixed rate mortgages offered by lenders have been getting gradually less generous. And this has been going on in the market for around eight or nine months. At least it had until this week. A raft of lenders has actually announced they're trimming their rates on new fixed rate deals. The list includes Santander, TSB, Tesco, West Bromwich Building Society and Scottish Widows. Leeds has cut its rates on buy-to-let mortgages and this follows cuts last week to products from Yorkshire and Virgin Money. So what's going on? Do lenders know something we don't? On the line to explain is David Hollingworth of broker London and Country Mortgages. David, thanks very much for joining us. Surely it's madness for lenders to be cutting rates when they know with pretty much near certainty that the base rate will be rising in just a few months' time. Why are they doing it? Well, I think there's probably a combination of reasons. So first and foremost, lenders always monitor their competitive position, um, even in certain niche loan-to-value bandings, they might be looking at whether they could trim a little bit more to attract a bit more business. But we're coming towards the autumn. Lenders will have half an eye on end-of-year targets. Uh, And in order to get mortgage business on the books before the end of the year, they will have to start pricing to get that business now. It seems to be quite a unique sort of combination of factors. So you've got the annual seasonal discounting that's going on. For the first time, we have that in the full knowledge that uh, the rates will be going up. Can you remember uh, this this sort of combination before? You've got to remember these are fixed rate changes. So lenders um, will have a cost of funding that's dictated by market expectation of what's happening with rates. And that's why we have seen fixed rates generally edging up. And they, and they remain higher than they were this time last year. However, within that, lenders will adjust different products in order to make sure that they're getting the right flow of business coming in. So we may still be at a higher level, um, but lenders can afford to just take off a little bit of margin just to attract more borrowers where need be. So is it a good time to get a mortgage? Well, fixed rates are very competitive. I mean, this is all a function of uh, competition, more lenders in the market looking for our business. So that's good for the consumer. It is mainly being fought on on fixed rates, and that's where we're seeing most borrowers uh, head, um, whether they're going shorter term or, or or increasingly for the the five year deals. Rates are very good, they, they, and they they are still a bit higher. So I, I think now is a good time to be reviewing. You can lock in ahead of a base rate increase and make sure you've got some stability going forward. We've seen a, a rash of these cuts to to rates this week. And there are seasonal and competitive factors feeding into that. Is that a sort of window that closes at some point? And when would that window close, do you think? I'd hope that we might see lenders start targeting remortgage business as they head into the autumn. And this could be the first um, round of that. I also think that they're more comfortable post-mortgage market review. When you get to Christmas, of course, the market does slow down, as do many markets. Um, and so you might see just a, a stepping off the gas as we near Christmas. But in today's market, it's very competitive out there. So would you advise people then to wait? Until, I mean, people who are thinking, well, I, I will wait until base rates actually go up. Is it better for them to go for it slightly earlier than that? I think with fixed rates, the the general direction of travel is going to be upwards still. So we'll we'll see some of this tweaking of deals to be more competitive against their peers. Uh, But actually, we shouldn't forget that, I mean, if we look at five-year fixed rates, for example, they're a good half a percent 
uh, more expensive on a benchmark rate than they were last summer. So as we get closer and closer to the point when base rate looks like uh, inevitable to rise, uh, we will see fixed rates continue to increase. So really getting in on a a good deal now makes more sense. Um, Now we saw figures out last week which showed that mortgage approvals rose uh, for the first time in five months. Uh, Is there a danger that these deals on rates, on fixed rates, will stoke up demand in the housing market at a time when the Bank of England really wants to rein it in? We're back to the mortgage market review, I think, in terms of um, what we're not seeing is a a slackening in criteria, which is important. So it's still that bit harder to get a mortgage, uh, and you are still going to have to demonstrate that that mortgage is going to be affordable, not just today, but going forward. Also, for borrowers, if they are going to take a, a, on a bigger mortgage, then fixing the rate so they know where they stand and have some security also makes a good deal of sense, especially as we're going into a period when base rate looks set to rise. Do you think, therefore, that these uh, worries about indebtedness um, that certainly Mark Carney, the bank governor, has alluded to and others have raised as, as big issues, do you think the regulations adequately deal with, with those worries? The bedrock of them is affordability. So they're looking not only at what a borrower's income is, but also what their outgoings look like. Uh, So committed items of expenditure. Um, And that means that lenders are not just saying, "Okay, well, we're feeling more confident about the market. We will just lend you a bit more. Um, They're actually very much holding that back. And if anything, it's only been getting tighter with some putting uh, loan to income caps on there. So the the criteria side of things is still um, quite restricted. Um, It doesn't mean that you can't get a mortgage, but you will have to be able to show that you can afford that mortgage. And I think that's important and sensible going forward. David, thank you very much. Thank you. And if you want to know where to put your cash to work, there's always plenty of ideas in FT Money. Other highlights from this weekend's edition. What would a yes vote for Scottish independence mean for depositors and mortgage holders in the country? How to spot an investment scam when you're the potential target? And the loophole that means investors might still be able to put their money into so-called cocoa bonds, even as the regulator warns them off. We're always keen to hear from readers and listeners. If you want to let us know about a hot topic or share your thoughts, you can do so via Twitter. The handle is ftmoney online at ft.com slash money, or via email. The address is money at ft.com. We'll be back next week, but for now, it's goodbye from me, Emma, and our special studio guests, Alan Hyam of Fidelity Worldwide Investment and David Hollingworth of London and Country Mortgages. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 